Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz, and this is The Conversation. Mahalo for joining us on this Aloha Friday, December 15th. We have a movie Hanaho today, shining the spotlight on films with local ties. We're revisiting Removed by Force, which tells the story of 1,500 Japanese Americans forced out of their homes during World War II. We look again into A Great Divide, a film about a Korean-American family that settles in middle America. And Tetris Anyone, Hawaii resident Hank Rogers, is the star of the Tetris movie based on how the video game went worldwide. Still have your Game Boy? Plus, the Kauai Film Academy rolls out its first feature this year, Too Much Life. We learn how it's creating opportunities for teens in the industry. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's around this time that critics make a list of their favorite movies of 2023, so we thought we'd hana ho some of our favorite interviews about films from this year. We start with one about the 1,500 Japanese Americans in Hawaii who were evicted from their homes and businesses during World War II because of their ethnicity, but never imprisoned. It's a documentary titled Removed by Force, the eviction of Hawaii's Japanese Americans in World War II. Here's the opening. December 7, 1941. The nation of Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. The United States enters World War II. Fueled by unfounded suspicions of disloyalty and wartime hysteria, over 2,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry from Hawaii were incarcerated in camps in both Hawaii and the U.S. mainland. At the same time, another egregious crime was committed by the U.S. government. About 1,500 Japanese Americans in Hawaii were forcibly removed from their homes and businesses. At gunpoint, military officials stormed into their homes and ordered their removal. These Japanese Americans were not incarcerated, but many lost their homes and never returned to their neighborhoods after the war ended. For over 50 years, these 1,500 Americans of Japanese ancestry in Hawaii kept silent about the violation of their civil rights. This is their story and the story of their fight for justice. After being forcibly removed, some went to live with family and friends. Others were forced to find shelter elsewhere. Some made their homes in the hills and thick brush around our islands. One family on Maui lived in a chicken coop. The film was directed by Hawaii-born filmmaker Ryan Kawamoto. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with Kawamoto in our studios this past July to talk about the film. The people that we focus on in this film, they're Americans of Japanese ancestry. They were not incarcerated or sent to camps in Hawaii or the U.S. mainland, but they were evicted. They were evicted from their homes and their businesses in Hawaii in 23 different areas across the territory of Hawaii by the military, many at gunpoint, many with bayonets pointed in their faces and told to get out in less than 24 hours. And it was just people of Japanese heritage or Japanese Americans, right? No, no other ethnicities, you know, whatever, like Filipinos or Chinese, no other ethnicities were treated like this, right? Not in this way. There were other ethnicities that were also evicted, but often they had much more warning Mm -hmm. when they had housing provided for them or other options provided for them. Whereas the Japanese Americans, they were just kicked out. And when, when we think about the people that were forcibly removed and we kind of compare them to the people who ended up incarcerated or interned, when we look at the people in the camps, there are physical sites and documentation, right, to serve as a reminder that this happened, right? We think of places like Honouli'uli, and um, there's some other places even on the West Coast that served as internment camps, right? But for these 1,500 Japanese Americans or people of Japanese ancestry, for this group of 1,500, their story was almost lost to time, it seems like. In the film, you capture how their story was finally first brought to light. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, certainly. So 
1988, the Civil Liberties Act was passed by President Reagan, and this was the act that provided $20,000 of compensation and a letter of apology to those who were incarcerated during World War II. And of course, this was hard fought. It, it took over 10 years, probably 10 years plus, for, the, for this to even happen. So when redress started, one of the main community organizers was the Japanese American Citizens League. And here in Honolulu, there's a chapter. And, you know, they would have workshops and help people fill out their forms to get redress. Well, at the time, Bill Koneko, who is one of the writers of the book and producers of the film, and it's based on his accounts, you know, he gets a phone call. And he gets a phone call from a person named Dr. Kanemaru, who was formerly of Lua Lua Lei on the west side. And he talks about, you know, how his family, which was a family of farmers, they were evicted from Lua Lua Lei. And he said, well, we are we eligible? And, you know, JACL and their attorney, they were like, well, we've never heard of this before. No one has heard of this before. So let's 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 check. So they bring it up to the attention of the Department of Justice, to the Office of Redress Administration, the ORA, and the ORA has never heard of these accounts before either. So it, it opened up a whole new set of what they call unique cases. And soon enough, they put out a press release and all of a sudden hundreds and hundreds of, of people came out and started you know, saying, well, I lived here and I was evicted. I lived here and I was evicted or, you know, across the state. And ultimately, that the total of those people ended up being somewhere around 1,500, right? Which is only about 500 less than the 2,000 that were interned from Hawaii to 2,000? Uh, yeah, it was over 2,000, but it, they were both incarcerated in both Hawaii and the U.S. And the US okay. depending on, you know, if they're first generation or second generation yeah. and, and other factors as well, yeah. too. And I don't want to give away a lot of your film because something else happens in your film in this process that's that's kind of like this huge discovery is even when their story came to light, they still had obstacles to overcome with the redress, right? Well, geographically, there were 23 different areas and a lot of times, you know, those cases weren't always granted redress. And so in some instances, they were rejected and Bear in mind that there were volunteer pro bono attorneys working on these cases right. to, to try to help help the different uh, groups get redress. And so uh, many obstacles because, w number one, there was really no documentation of who was evicted and who wasn't. In the camps, there was a roster, you know, physical roster of who was there. In these particular cases, they were evicted. <laughs> and so there wasn't really a record. But what they did find eventually were documents, government documents with various orders for various areas. So this was, was some of the evidence used, but also there were documents in other areas. So it became each each area actually became like a unique case. And that was a major obstacle, especially those that they couldn't find certain. Well, there was, for example, there was one one case on Maui, Pu'unene. And I, I believe the attorney said their, their case was rejected like seven times <laughs> before they finally got it. Yeah. And, and there's a really cool part in, in your film where they discover some of those documents and it's and it's a really cool part of your of your film and and I think people will really enjoy it when they get there as storytellers we're always looking for these kinds of stories to tell stories of the overlooked or the forgotten why did you choose to make this film for the past i would say about 15 years i've been privileged to have worked on other films relating to the japanese american incarceration stories during world war 2 in hawaii so i had done two previous full-length documentaries with the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have been very immersed in the history and the personal stories of, of what happened in Hawaii. But I always felt that this one would be, you know, one that really needs to be brought to light. And it, it wouldn't have been brought to light if not for Bill Koneko, mm -hmm. who authored a book with Sarah Lynn, also called Removed by Force, which is the basis for this film. You know, Bill has been working on this book for probably a decade based on their experiences, you know, helping the various unique cases and, and the claimants get redressed. And, you know, I, I read it probably over the course of the pandemic and, you know, we were talking like, okay, yeah, I would love to work with you on this and let's let's bring it to light and let's let's really share these stories. And so we adapted the book and also went a little deeper and got more personal stories from, you know, some of the survivors or children of the survivors, as well as the pro bono attorneys involved in the cases. Do you feel a little bit like you were meant to do this job? I mean, I, I know you're you're of Japanese descent and you are a filmmaker and you're a local filmmaker. 
you grew up here. I know, I know you went to UH Manoa. Do you feel like you were the right guy for the job for these films? Yeah, I've always been interested in Japanese American history in Hawaii. I mean, my senior thesis was on the 442nd 100th, you know, making a movie out of that, actually. Maybe one day I'll get to do it. So I've always been in, interested in this time period and been fortunate to you know, start working on you know, the World War II incarceration stories and it, it continued on for you know, many, many projects. So I do feel like this is sort of my calling and I, I think it's very important to share these stories with the world. Because many of these Japanese Americans that were incarcerated or forcibly removed, there were American citizens who just happened to be of Japanese descent. And they experienced something so terrible at the hands of their own country, but still felt loyal to America while making this film. Did you get a sense as to why they still felt loyal to America? Yeah, that's the amazing part of this story, because I think a lot of them felt that because of the reparations, because of the apology, it was that was very important to them. I think what I learned is that that was more important to them than than any money. It was really the apology. And, you know, a lot of them said that they feel like America is still the greatest country in the world because the government actually admitted that they were wrong and they apologized for it and they did reparations for it. So I think there are a great deal that that, that have some some closure to that and they don't harbor as much bitterness as as you might think. What do you hope people will take away from the film? You know, one of the other parts of the story is that the people that really helped those with unique cases were members of the JCL Honolulu and members of Napaba. And they were all volunteer attorneys. And they were all young. That's something you probably saw in the, in the film. They were all like 30 or under or very young in their careers. And they all felt like we're young. We can make a difference. We can change the world. And they did. And I hope the other message that comes to this film is that, you know, young people can really make a difference, especially when it comes to issues of social justice. Like if you see something that's wrong, you know, don't sit on the sidelines. You can do something about it. There's a lot of apathy in this world today in our culture. And I hope this film can serve as an example that people can make a difference. People can change things. Ryan Kawamoto, thanks for joining me today. The film is Removed by Force. Appreciate coming to the studio. Thank you so much. That was director Ryan Kawamoto talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the documentary Removed by Force, the eviction of Hawaii's Japanese Americans in World War II. The film will be screened in several cities along the West Coast in February, and you'll be able to watch it on PBS Hawaii in February as well. feature film that's gaining critical buzz this year is A Great Divide by filmmaker Gene Shim. It's a story of a Korean-American family that leaves the Bay Area for small-town Wyoming. Here's the trailer. Yes, you're here. It's obvious that Asians are higher achievers. And can you believe what it takes to get into college these days? I mean, Asians have to have perfect scores and we just write checks. Why do you think we decided to move here? Nips. Have you seen them? Who? The goddamn Chinese folks. They're running all over protected public lands like they own the place. Just get these people out of my town. I don't care how you do it. It's a nice place. I always wondered who bought this house. How long ago did you move in? Uh, we just got here. Yeah, from China. Actually, uh, we're from Korea. Look, this area ain't safe. Why don't you just leave the woods to us? We belong here. This is a 
When I was in third grade, all the kids surrounded me and told me to go back where I came from. Now, between you and me, we can do things the easy way or the hard way. Your choice. This is a bottle trap. The reason we can't get out is because we won't let go. I told you it wasn't about the money, it was about the respect. It was the respect that I earned, because I did that for you and for Benjamin. A Great Divide addresses the emotional and psychological impact of racism, but it's also about a family repairing itself after tragedy. Former HPR producer Stephanie Hahn talked with Jean Shim about her debut feature based on her own experience of moving to rural Wyoming during the pandemic. Not only when the pandemic started, but when I saw the rise of Asian hate, I was sitting in Wyoming looking out at the mountains and I had this epiphany or this dialogue within myself. They said, I can't believe this is happening now at the age that I am. I couldn't believe that I was seeing elderly Asian grandfathers and grandmothers being thrown to the ground. And that wasn't necessarily in rural America. That was in the cities. But it was just this rise of Asian hate and going in to the town. And during the pandemic, when I felt the eyes on me as if I brought COVID into this land and I was wearing a mask when most were not, everything was heightened. And I thought at that time, I need to do something. I'm, as most Asians would say, and Korean Americans, anything that happens, we just kind of stick our head down, work hard, ignore it, or just say it'll pass. And I think that's what I always used to do in high school when I was growing up. I just said, I'm going to survive through this. I'm going to get through it. Just be quiet. And the less of a voice you have, you just thought you can get through it. And now, as I'm much older, I have my own kids. I said, no, enough is enough. I have to do something. I don't know what that is, but I have to do something. If that means, do I get involved in an organization or do I go get political? I don't know what that is, but I took a moment and I said, the best way I can address this issue that was so deep within my heart and I was so concerned about where we were and where the Asian hate was going, I said, it's through storytelling. And I knew that I can direct a film, I could tell a story and tell a narrative. And from there, from the landscape of Wyoming that was kind of speaking to me also, that I should write a story and that's where it came from. And I really felt that the land and the land of Wyoming particularly was so good and I felt that they were looking at us and kind of shaking their head saying what are you doing you know and that's what I felt even in the film when I was shooting in Wyoming and my producer was saying oh you could shoot in Montana it's much easier we get a tax credit etc I said no there is spirit of Wyoming that was calling on me that I felt that we had to shoot here and I felt that actually the land is good. America is actually very good at the heart but sometimes when we experience the things that we experience and like the rise of Asian hate I think we need to address it and I always feel like when we hear stories then we can get more compassionate and empathy for people. How have the people of Wyoming reacted to this film or have they had a chance to see it? I actually had many people, the crew and everybody that was here, that was extremely supportive of the film. I think that the reception of being from, having this in rural America, I didn't really feel, maybe it was from my take and perspective on it, was that it wasn't just about being in rural America that was the prominent idea of racism. I felt that change is difficult. You know, a lot of people, they don't want change, any kind of change. And I, particularly me too, don't like change. At any time there is that kind of change, I fight against it. 
And I think most people can understand that. I think that's something that really resonates. And what I found really interesting is when our premiere was at the film festival and we're at the Heartland Film Festival and we are actually being very well received in middle America, which is kind of the dialogue of what I wanted to have. And especially when I was in Arkansas, you wouldn't believe the amount of people from Arkansas and the generosity came up and said, I was thinking about your film still the next day. And we had a dialogue about it. And I want my mother and my brother, when it comes to theater, to go watch it. I think because it presented kind of a story of where me and my parents, my grandparents, immigrants came from and our experience here in America that they related to. Yeah, it provides a space for people to talk about stuff, right? So, Absolutely. And, I, and, and thank you for asking that question, only because it is a hard subject matter. You know, when I decide I'm going to do something about Asian hate and xenophobia, it's not an easy subject matter to tackle. I get it. But yet, I think, as you said, it's a dialogue. And I think when we see someone's perspective or a story, you're more empathetic and you, you start having that dialogue. And that's when the divide isn't as great. We're actually more together than not together. I also felt your film raised this really important question about how do we exist in a system that actively works for us to feel unsafe? And Mm. so this presents often serious moral dilemmas. And I didn't know if you had any questions about this idea of where can people feel safe? How do we create this? Did you come to any new ideas about this as you were making the film? You know, I go back, I go to the big cities and I've lived there for many years. I have to be honest with you, I probably feel more unsafe in a bigger city than in rural, in a more smaller town in Wyoming, even though in Wyoming kids can get guns when they're 15 years old and everybody has a gun. But the gun, it's treated differently. However, the interesting point you bring up about about oppression. I think that's another thing that we talked about in the film that was interesting even when we talked about North Korea and South Korea. Here is a country that is not necessarily about race because we are one people and yet there is an oppressive uh, history in our country and also not in the history of our country of Korea, China and Japan, everyone, you know, wanting our land and oppressing our land and understanding what that feels like to be under oppression and our parents lived through that and my grandparents lived through that with horrific oppression and fear and kind of trying to obliterate our country and our our nation and our language, et cetera, in Korea. So with that, there's some kind of, I don't know, in Korean blood, there's this kind of strength that we have. I think it comes from the generations of being oppressed and as being in America and going through that, that's when we have this kind of quiet thunder. We we can get through things and survive and yet at the same time have a voice now. And I think for the future generation and what this film really talks about is that the future generation does have a choice and I believe our future is in their hands. And if they can know the history of where we come from and the choices they can make, I truly believe our country can be less fearful, more loving and accepting, and rather than going the other way, which at the end monologue, the Benjamin character states. Was there anything unexpected, the creative act or some scene or some moment that, you know, changed you or made the project a little different? I would say there's one that comes to mind that was quite special. In the film, you'll see... The moose and moose in Wyoming are very difficult to find. If you ever come here, you go on a tour and, and they may be 200 yards away and you have to get binoculars and you look through them, but they're very magical. They're large and beautiful animals. Uh, when I was designing the hoodie for our cast and crew, I drew a moose in the back and my writer said, why are you drawing a moose? There's no moose in our film because we never <laughs> wrote a moose because we knew there's no way to capture a moose. Maybe we could get an elk, we could get a bison. I knew how I can do that and make that happen for the film, but not a moose. So many miracles on this film 
that nature and animals came through for us. We didn't have a wrangler. We didn't do these things. We didn't have the budget for those things. And also, they roam around our land freely. So one day, a moose walks through the house in the backyard, and I look at my cinematographer and say, like, a moose! And I have never seen a moose come through that area. We didn't have the physical camera yet from Panavision. So I told the whole crew, guys, if you ever see a moose anywhere, text me because we'll shut everything down. We'll capture a moose and we'll rewrite the scene to capture this moose. So another crew member saw a moose in the neighborhood. We ran and got the moose, captured on camera, and my, my DB said, oh my goodness, I got you a moose. And I said, no, 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 this moose isn't going to do because we need the moose attached to the house because the family lives in the house. Right. We've got to get it at the house. Okay, he woke up early one morning, saw the moose in the backyard of the house, called me, he's in the bathroom, runs over, gets the camera, and this is the miracle. The moose was taking a nap in the backyard of the house. And he wouldn't get up. So then he only had 30 seconds left of the camera roll. So 15 seconds left. I didn't know this. And suddenly the moose stands up. We don't even have the moose walking off screen because we ran out of film. I knew when that happened. I said, that's the end of our film. It was telling me spiritually that this is the end of your film, Gene. And it was just a true gift. I looked at my DP said, listen... Wyoming and nature is on our side. It will answer for us. And I could write a book about how it did and made the film in a kind of a magical way, dictated what we needed to capture. That was filmmaker Jean Shim talking about her movie, A Great Divide. We'll continue our movie, Hanaho, after a short break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. This month, screening films that explore uses of perspective, including Rashomon, A Bigger Splash, and The Draftsman's Contract. Film schedule at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello. I'm Trevi Johnson, the author of Fierce Consciousness. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about surviving tough challenges, both personal and planetary. Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Katherine Cruz. Today, we're airing a movie, Hanaho, highlighting some of our favorite interviews with films. Hawaii entrepreneur Hank Rogers is the subject of the movie Tetris, which debuted on Apple TV Plus earlier this year. Does this addictive tune bring back memories? Hank Rogers is credited with securing the rights to Tetris, the highly addictive Russian game that mesmerized gamers around the globe. We talked to Rogers back in April about his friendship with game designer Alexei Pachanov and about how this movie came about. There was a documentary on BBC going way back. I, mean, I think it was the, like something like 2008. Uh, they did a really good job. Uh, they actually interviewed all the characters that are there in the story. Time goes by, and somebody saw the documentary and said, wow, that would make a movie. And uh, they contacted me, would you like a movie done about your life? And I said, oh, not really. <laughs> but then my daughter said, you know what, uh, you should do it. So 
she convinced me. Well, it was interesting because I know when I first heard about you, and I was like, oh, yeah, you got the rights to, you know, the Tetris. And I didn't really understand. But then, you know, watching this film, it was like, wow, lots of cloak and dagger in the gaming world. Well, I, I <laughs> or was that know. Hollywood? I don't know. There is a, well, put it this way, the, um, the feeling was there. I mean, I was obviously in the Soviet Union on a tourist visa, and I'm trying to talk to people that I'm not supposed to talk to. I'm not supposed to talk to citizens. They're not supposed to speak to me. I was certainly not supposed to go into a ministry. It's like going to North Korea today and, and uh, walking into a ministry. I don't think they'll let you do that. I think uh, you would be charged with something, you know? I kind of felt that I might be, you know, some, ha having trouble. But Alexei Pajnov tells me that he, he definitely knew he was breaking the law by talking to me. He invited me to his house. So uh, that was a big chance he took. And I was just a little bit naive. And the film, you know, mentions how you became friends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're like, you know, it's funny. It's best friends forever. When we're in the same city, well, for example, I lived in Seattle for a year. Every other day, it's a bottle of wine. This is like tradition that we have. And we're not talking about games or, or Tetris. We're just talking about all kinds of things that friends talk about. Yeah, and we've traveled together, no particular reason, just to have fun. Yeah, we are still really good friends. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that we couldn't be more different. We don't listen to the same music. We don't, you know, when we went on our trip together, he likes to plan things. He wants to know exactly where we're going, what, where we're staying. And me, I want an adventure. So I want to go somewhere and not know where we're going to stay or who we're going to meet or whatever. So when we went together, one day was his day, one day uh. was my day, and we went back and forth. That was very interesting. And then your families, because, you know, the film talks about your family and his family. And so how has all that, you know, worked? Uh, his family's all in, in uh, Clyde Hill, which is where Bill Gates lives. Um, so his family's all set. So he's happy to be, and he's become, become an American citizen. He doesn't have to work anymore. And so he's mostly doing mathematics or puzzles, the kind of stuff that he likes to do. He's writing a novel. So he keeps himself busy, but he's a little introvert. This is, again, the opposite of me. I'm extrovert. So I'm running around the world trying to get things done. And he's just basically staying at home. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just remember because, you know, you're always real clear on, oh, no, I didn't invent the game. I didn't design the game. I just got the rights. But like I said, this backstory was just fascinating to me watching watching the film. Sometimes people call me Mr. Tetris. I say, no, I'm not Mr. Tetris. Alexei Pajanov is Mr. Tetris. You can call me Dr. Tetris because I kept the, uh, Tetris alive all these years. So that's sort of my job is to, to make sure that that Tetris stays alive. Do you still play it? Uh, from time to time. You know, I don't play it for fun as much as I used to. I'll play it. The other day I was on, what is it, Tamron, Tamron Hall, and I had to play for the first time in ages. And she was playing for the first <laughs> time ever. And she just, I mean, she, she was awful. She didn't know how to play at all. So I had to I had to chime in and help her out. But it was, yeah, it was fun. I imagine, though, this film is going to do just that, is introduce the game to another generation, folks who just didn't know anything about it. Hope so. I did happen to see that Mario Brothers, I think, is coming out with the film, too. So I just wondered if there was a little competition between It's the a two. whole different, you know, it's a whole different audience. So Mario is going to have a little boy gamer or whatever uh, audience. And I mean, it's the same story as, as when I met uh, Arakawa and uh, convinced him to put Tetris in Game Boy. He said, Mr. Arakawa, you should include Tetris in every Game Boy when you sell G Game Boy. And he said, why should I do that? I have Mario. As well, if you want little boys to buy your Game Boy, then include Mario. But if you want everyone to buy your Game Boy, then you should include Tetris. I think they actually put that line in the movie. You saw the movie mm -hmm. just yesterday. Yes. So, um, and he called in his experts and they agreed. And, you know, I, I said, by the way, after you sell, you know, the Game Boy with included with Tetris, you can still sell Mario and make the money off Mario. And uh, he agreed and uh, shook hands on a deal. And um, gosh, a couple of weeks later, I got on a plane and went to Moscow. And so, you know, as people start seeing this movie, I'm sure, you know, they're just thinking about just the political climate now, you know, with Russia. And, uh, you know, I think in the film it talked about Stalin. And, you know, so here we have uh, Putin and, and uh, the situation in Ukraine. I mean, I don't you ever think about how kind of strange things are now. 
Yeah, I, I, th I think uh, things, well, I mean, Soviet Union, don't get me wrong, was strange. You know, like you go to North Korea now, it's strange. It's not how we think the world works. But at least the time that uh, I went to the Soviet Union, it was sort of towards the end. And people are starting to have hope for a new kind of life, uh, you know, freedom. And uh, those things were like on the horizon and they were moving towards that. That freedom seems to have evaporated today. And, you know, they're back to living in a very dark place where... Well, if you say the wrong thing, you end up in jail. So I, I, I feel bad about that. I feel bad for the people who are living in that situation. Uh, it's not their fault. It's they're, they're victimized by it. You know, you could say that throughout history, people have always been victimized by the people who are in power on top. They get them to send their children to fight wars that... Why would they, why would we want to, you know, in my case, I was 17 when uh, next year they're going to send me to Vietnam. What did they ever do to us? Why should we go there and, and kill people? That just makes no sense at all. Those decisions are made by people that are higher up, and they convince us that, that we're dying for our country or whatever. At some point, people are people. And so the, the friendship between Alexei and me is, an, is a testament to the fact that here's an ordinary human being with another hu ordinary human being, and we're friends. And it has nothing to do with, with politics or I ideology. All that stuff can take a hike. Uh, friendship is stronger than ideology. Yeah, bonded over uh, a, a, a game and a Game Boy. <laughs> a game, yeah. So, you know, when I got to meet him for the first time, I was the first game designer he'd ever met. There's no, no game business in the Soviet Union. There was no, like, people making games and, and uh, making money off of games or anything like that. Yeah, it was very interesting, eye-opening for him to find out about the game business because I explained everything. On my first meeting, you know, I basically explained how the business worked, how I got into the game business because I was an unlikely character. I'm a Dutch guy, sounds like an American, living in Japan, visiting the Soviet Union. <laughs> It's right. like, that doesn't make any sense. And you're a deal maker. <laughs> and I was a wheeler dealer, yeah. So Looking back, you know, now that this film has been released, reflecting on that time, what has that meant to you? It's a very important time in my life. It was definitely a turning point. Life before Tetris and life after Tetris is completely different. Fortunate uh, that I was able to figure out that Tetris was going to be a significant game. And that, that's maybe lucky me or maybe it's a skill, but, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, of luck and skill involved. I wouldn't change it for a, for a minute. People ask me, so what, weren't you crazy? Weren't you, like, think that you were in danger? And I said, well, yeah. So, you know, how do I explain it? And it's like, I would say 20% naivety and 80% determination. And uh, that ter determination uh, has served me well throughout my life. That was Hank Rogers, the man who brought Tetris to the global market. The film Tetris is based on his story and his determination to secure the rights to the Russian game. While our state has been building its film and television industry as a whole over the last few decades, some folks on Kauai have been quietly focused on building the talent there. The Kauai Film Academy was founded in 2010 and served as an incubator for the development of student-driven films. It also provides technical behind-the-camera job training and on-set experience. This year, it released its first feature film titled Too Much Life. Elliot Lucas is one of the co-founders of the Academy and a producer on the film. He talked with the conversations from Russell Subiono. There was a period in 2015, 2016, where there was just nothing coming. And it's like, how do you have a sustainable career in Hawaii if, if you're, all you're doing is kind of waiting around for the next thing? And when it does come, it's great. But we want more control over our filmmaking destiny. And so... Um, the first step of the film academy or you know how it came to be was we want to start training our people here to get these upper level jobs 
And it was through working with kids on the island, you know, mainly starting out as a after school program at the high school. And then we then moved on to creating our own nonprofit. You know, we worked with kids, we created short stories and, and documentaries and things that they wanted to do. Then this idea for this movie came about and it really became the catalyst for everything that we do because we said, okay, well, if we're just going to kind of sit around and wait for movies to come here, why don't we make something ourselves? We have all the tools here and the, the technology is advancing so much and we're using the same cameras they do. We're shooting in the same locations that they pay millions of dollars to shoot and it's right in our backyard. I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't make something of a Disney caliber movie ourselves. And so uh, that's what we started to do. We wrote a movie based around what the kids wanted to do, you know, because a lot of the kids that we work with on the island, sometimes when they go through the film academy, they, they find out that they actually want to be in front of the camera. Or some people think they want to be in front of the camera and they end up being great crew members and they like working behind the camera. It was only natural that we would make a movie centered around kids because that's who we're all around all the time and that's what they're excited about. So spent two years, you know, writing the script for Too Much Life with the kids and we did a Kickstarter campaign in 2017. You guys were able to raise over 100000 on uh, on that Kickstarter. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it, it was in actually the top 20 highest funded movies ever on Kickstarter, which is kind of a really got us thinking like, hey, you know, people really want to see more films like this. And there was a lot of local support for it. You know, we raised that money on Kickstarter. We went full into production and we did a island-wide casting. 400 people from around the island came out for the casting call. And we went through the process of shooting the movie for two years with all these different kids around the island and 215 shooting days. Wow. <laughs> so it was a daunting task because, for one, it, it, it was a complete voluntary thing. A, they were all doing it because they wanted to be a part of something really big. That's what we all kind of dream about, right? It's like we kind of make shorts and we make documentaries and stuff, but we always wish we were on the set of... Blade Runner. You know, we always wish we were making a feature. And so for all of us to be a part of something that's really big was very exciting. And a lot of the kids got to get serious roles where they got to show how good actors they really are. Very serious and dramatic roles, but also comedy too. And uh, it was a long process with not having a, a real budget. But yeah, we got through it and we're, we're at the finish line now. Going back to the Academy real quick, you were saying that you guys have been around for about 10 years and, and it kind of started out as an after school program. How did the things that the kids learned at the Academy, how, how did that translate to the production side? Were there kids that worked on the crew as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say 99% of the crew of this movie were between the ages of 12 and 16 years old. Like our focus puller, AJ, was 14 at the time. Our boom operator, his name was Q Valdez. He was 14 too. Almost everyone on the crew, they were kids. And the thing about the film academy and how it kind of, this movie became sort of, not really a catalyst, but that was the film academy. And I, I really believe that when it comes to teaching filmmaking at the academy or wherever, there's nothing better than on-the-job training. So that's what we decided to do. It was really like, you know, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to train, 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 and then make this movie. It was more like, let's make a movie. We're probably going to screw up a lot, but through this process, we're all going to learn what it's really like. And there's nothing like that. There's nothing like being on the set, and it starts raining, and you're running out of time, and you're all having to think of how are we going to get through this? What are we going to do to solve these problems? What do we do about the chickens crowing and you know, everything else that, you know, you can't learn by just reading about it. And that was, that was really it. Making this movie was the film academy. It was training. It's on the job training. That's how you really learn, you know? I think a lot of the lessons that they learned, a lot of the skills that they picked up during the production process, that'll translate in later in life, if, if they want to continue in the film industry, but it seems like those are foundational lessons that'll translate probably to anywhere in life moving forward. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Caitlin, our, our main actress, she was a, a miracle, to be honest. I mean, when this movie plays at the Hawaii Theater on the 19th of August, I will have witnessed a miracle happen. <laughs> the reason I say that is because there was no one on this island that could have done what she did. And somehow she got the role. It was her dedication to the project that ultimately made it happen. And I mean, this, this thing could have fallen apart so easily over the course of these six years of working on it. But Caitlin's going to give a speech before the movie plays about the Film Academy. And her parents say this, the movie did change her life. It, it taught her serious discipline and sticking with something for, for a long time and believing in something. And that's really gratifying, especially for a kid. Can you imagine being 14 years old and signing up for something and sticking with it for four years yeah. instead of hanging out with your friends, filming a movie? I mean, it's it takes so much dedication for so long. I mean, it's hard enough to get a kid to go to baseball practice for a season, you know, right. not miss a day. And hundreds of people are all counting on you. And, and so, yeah, there's definite life lessons learned through this thing that will translate. And even just the, like on the filmmaking side for the crew, I mean, I stand by that the 14-year-old kids that worked on this movie could get a job anywhere and they would have more experience than most people. They know how to use walkie-talkies. They understand how the camera works, focus pulling. I mean, they, they have big picture knowledge of all the inner workings of it. I do talk to a lot of local artists, whether they're in film or television or music. And a lot of, or one of the themes that a lot of them touch on is how much talent there is in Hawaii and how they want to showcase or, you know, be part of showcasing the talent that is here in Hawaii. When you have gone through this process, starting with creating the Academy and going through this film process, what do you think it says about the talent on Kauai? Oh, that it's here. You know, we just need the tools and the organization to make it happen. You know, I think that we made a movie that looks like a $5 million movie for $100,000 because of all the people that were involved, the locations, all the props and the wardrobe. It's all done by people here. You know, and so what our goal is with this movie is that this isn't just like a one-off thing. This is kicking off a bigger dream, which is to create high-level movies in the state of Hawaii with our people. Big money people might look at this and go, hey, you know, you guys just made a $5 million movie with nothing. What could you actually do with a $5 million budget? So we want to get to a point where we're making a movie a year as opposed to one every seven. You know, this one was very difficult because we had to prove that we can do it. And that was one of the biggest struggles making the movie was it's kind of like convincing people that we can do it believing that we can make things that maybe not even Netflix can make here because we know all the people, we know the secret location. Like I said, it's like in our backyard. And so, you know, of course, I mean, there's talent here for sure. I think that this movie does that. I think when people watch it, they're going to be blown away. I believe that people will be mind blown when they see it because of how big the movie is. And it's going to change the way that they think. Judging by the production quality of the trailer, like I said before, it really gives me a real Disney Channel vibe. And I've got four kids, so I've seen a ton of Disney Channel movies. I know that the film will premiere at the Hawaii Theater on August 19th. Can you tell our listeners how they can get tickets? So you can get tickets at the Hawaii Theater website, hawaiitheater.com. We're going to have a red carpet out front. We're going to do the step and repeat. So anybody who goes, you're going to be you know, walking the red carpet. We might actually even shut the road down in front of the theater. We're working with the county right now about that. So that'll be pretty cool. You know, it's a pretty picturesque marquee out there. It should be pretty fun. Thanks so much for your time today, Elliot. Really appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening. That was Kauai Film Academy co-founder Elliot Lucas talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Too Much Life will be screened on Friday, December 29th at the Kauai War Memorial Convention Hall. We'll have a link to tickets on the conversation page of our website later today. We leave you now with the trailer. My name is Harper Hudson, and I go to Garden Island School. 
My followers always ask, how do you become president every year? Well, I have a good plan. So you have a meeting with the president of the art club at 8.30. That's Levi. He tracks all my posts. It's called analytics. He's smart. Thanks. Then there's Reina. She gets my drink. I'll hold your bag. And holds my bag. This is Marley. She designs all my outfits. It's Harper Hudson. It's perfect. This is going to be so easy. Is she really going to save nature? She's going to save nature? Check it. He blocked me and unfollowed you, and you're out of the social media club. I don't care. I've got my social club right here. They're called Friends. I need a new plan. to know everything. Read the accounts and spread the rumors. They know who I am. Our beloved Centennial Audrey has been seriously damaged. Well, that didn't work. Miss Hudson, one more misstep from you and the election is over. Do you understand? You can't do that. for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we check in on some of the cool work the University of Hawaii is doing with sail drones. Got a favorite movie you saw this year? Call or talk back line and leave us your comments. 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Mark Ladau. The Backyard Theme, written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Thank you.